Well, as Karen said, this is the fourth in our series on the divine within, which we've explored from different religious traditions, and this is the Sunday for Christianity. I kind of led you up to it. You know, we started with Buddhism, which is like, oh, Buddhism, <laughs> yeah, that's safe. And, um, and then Judaism, and that's, that's okay too, and then earth-centered, you know, we feel pretty good about that. So, um, so now here we go, and I'm very proud of you all for being here, uh, ready to tackle this with me. And I want to assure you that you don't need to worry, because we're going to start with the Quakers. <laughs> Everybody loves the Quakers, right? When I was a teenager, as a Unitarian Universalist, for reasons that I really can't remember now, I had um, conversations with my friends, fellow teen UUs, about who Unitarian Universalists could marry without it being really like a real interfaith marriage that you'd have to probably go to a lot of premarital counseling about. And, um, and so we decided that uh, Reformed Jews would be fine. That would be easy. Obviously, other Unitarian Universalists. We didn't know about ethical culture, but that would have been no problem at all. And then the Quakers were, were sort of those among the Christian tradition that we thought would be, you know, a pretty easy marriage to, um, to affect, apparently. And I have heard other folks here at West say that they think um, ethical culturists really are sort of Quakers who can't keep quiet. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but maybe... So Quakers, or the the Society of Friends, or Friends, as they're called, are indeed among sort of the most liberal or progressive of Christian traditions, joined there, although in a very different branch and in a different way, by our friends at the United Church of Christ and by many Baptist churches, well, some Baptist churches as well, Um, Baptist churches having their own polity, so, so everyone is very different from each other. And some Quakers really, I would say, kind of push the boundaries of Christianity, ascribing to universalism, to a sense of kind of connection with the spirit that, that would be hard to recognize from an Orthodox Christian perspective, but that speaks to them within their tradition and the tradition of the friends. But it's not just for that reason that they're sort of um, non-threatening to us that I wanted to speak a little bit about the friends today. Because the friends are eloquent on what I would say is closest to that idea, that theme we're looking at of the divine within. You may know about this phrase common within the Quaker tradition called inner light. Inner light was defined by Rufus Jones, a Quaker, a friend who brought the phrase into usage in 1904, and this is how he defined it. The inner light is the doctrine that there is something divine, something of God, in the human soul. So friends then and friends now in many different ways, because their tradition is diverse, like most religious traditions, they see the inner light as providing individual guidance, but also found when meeting together. You know, the silent meetings that Quakers are so famous for are silent really only until someone feels moved by that inner light to speak, until the inner light guides them to say what is in their heart and in their soul. Pierre Lacou, a Swiss Quaker, calls the silence of the silent meetings silence which is active. Isn't that a great phrase? Silence which is active and which causes, as he says, the inner light to glow. That's what he writes in his book, God is Silence. And George Fox, who was the founder of the Quakers, taught 
and I quote, people had no need of any teacher but the light that was in all men and women. Now, the inner light, as it's understood by Quakers, isn't conscience, really. It's not exactly the moral compass. It's something even deeper than that, which is why you need to be quiet to hear it. And I think we at the Washington Ethical Society can resonate with this need for quiet, even if we're sort of the the Quakers who can't stop talking. We can resonate with the need for quiet and with the idea that there is something deep within us. The theme, the divine within, as some of you know from other Sundays, came from a quote by Felix Adler, uh, the founder of ethical culture, who talked about the divine spark within each one of us. And I wonder if that inner light and the divine spark aren't maybe very close indeed. The idea of some guiding principle deep within us that we can access when we're quiet and when we listen. But you know, even I know that all Christians are not Quakers. And when they say the divine within, they don't all mean just some Adlerian inner spark of goodness. You know by now that I like to stress the commonalities among religious traditions, but even I cannot say that Jesus is optional within Christianity. (laughs) And indeed, I want to explore a little bit of the origin of those light metaphors in Christianity, which comes from descriptions mostly in the Gospel of John. You know, there are four Gospels in the Christian tradition, and John is generally the last that's that's kind of written. And it's the one that uh, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell stories of Jesus' life that are pretty similar. There's some differences. They were written by different people at different times, starting a couple of hundred years after Jesus lived. So they have all kinds of different stories, the way anybody would remember different stories about a person in a person's life. But they, they talk about a lot of the same events. Well, John is the different gospel. John is more like a poem or a song, really. That's how I think about it. Kind of a song about who Jesus was and, um, and what he meant to the person who wrote it. And so it has, John has all sorts of metaphorical language in it. Um, and so it's from John that we find some of those metaphors about light. In John 1, 9, uh, very, right at the very beginning, the author says, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Speaking, of course, about Jesus. And then later in John eight twelve, he has Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, friends, Quakers, you know, used this verse. That's where the origin of inner light came from. But I think the thing that helps it to resonate for us is that within the Quaker tradition, what they emphasized was the idea that every person is born with the light inside them. And early friends, this is actually, I'm quoting from Wikipedia here, early friends took this verse. Accurate, really, most of the time. Early friends took this verse as one of their mottos, that verse uh, 1, 9, and 8, 12, um, and often referred to themselves as children of the light. But even within that universalist context, the context of Quakers and other universalists within the Christian tradition, Jesus is certainly there. Of all of the religious traditions we've looked at, Christianity is the one with the clearest focus on a central figure, 
particularly since our study of Buddhism a few weeks ago was looking at Japanese Zen Buddhism. There are other forms where the Buddha is a more central figure within the religious tradition. And of course, as Karen said, this is the season, the season when Jesus mingles with Santa as the key figure in our lives for a few weeks, whether or not we invited either of them in, just as we walk around in the world and experience the American culture. There it is. Now, we can ignore Jesus' place within, within Christmas. And actually, it's so funny. I was watching, I love really bad Christmas movies. And so I was watching one yesterday on Hallmark about an elf who came from the North Pole. And then she fell in love, and so her ears had to change. Anyway, I really recommend it. But I was struck by the fact that, that, that this Hallmark movie was really not about sort of the, a Christian understanding um, of Christmas, or at least a religious Christian understanding, but about the understanding that we enjoy and love the magic of Christmas and family, warmth, Santa and the elves, of course. So we can ignore the Jesus part of Christmas, or we could advocate getting rid of it, keeping Christmas and, and getting rid of Jesus. I'm not quite sure exactly how that would work, but... Or we can engage with it and see what might be there for us. And you can guess which one I'm going to suggest that we do for a few moments. Well, I will let you in on a secret as long as you don't tell anybody else, including those of you listening to the recording on a podcast. I really like Jesus. I went to a Christian seminary, a Methodist seminary, and had wonderful teachers there who kind of cracked open the gospel story, the stories of Jesus, his life, and his message in a way that spoke to me deeply. For me, Jesus is a figure that brought a message of hope and love. And the truth about, about exactly what he said or when isn't as important as for me as what people said about him later, about the way people continue to see in his story the radical love and acceptance, a radical welcome. And then, too, Jesus' role as a teacher and a prophet, as a political figure in a particular time in history. For all of those reasons, I'm interested in exploring what he means to me. And so we celebrate Christmas in my home, and my daughter knows that it's about the birth of somebody named Jesus. Although, I've, I think I may have gone overboard um, trying to talk to her about that, because every time we see a crash now out in public, she's, she, she's five, and she calls out, Look! The baby Jesus! <laughs> Which wasn't really what I was going for, actually. <laughs> but so, so Jesus' life and story, and then the symbolism that he's taken on as a, a bringer of radical love and welcome. And over history, as we've seen in those passages from John and in the theology of the Quakers, Jesus himself came to be seen as a symbol of light, really of the indwelling of God, of incarnation. You know that word, right, incarnation, which literally means in incarnate, flesh, taking on flesh, and is the theological term that refers to the concept of God becoming human in Jesus so talk about the divine within. That's kind of the ultimate divine within the incarnation. Taken 
my guess is, to a level that probably doesn't resonate for some of you or many of you, but that we can appreciate in some ways as a kind of groundbreaking concept that God so, so fully came, the divine so fully came into human form. I think from my study that it's unlikely that Jesus saw himself in that way, although we'll never know. And of course, that's a topic of huge debate within, um, within the historical community and, and held in one particular way and answered in a particular way within the Christian tradition. So there are, though, so many stories about him, and those stories do take on meaning. So what's meaningful about the incarnation for us? Well, for me, I see a relationship between that sort of radical indwelling, right, the, the, the divine within in this really big, ultimate way, a relationship between that and what it ultimately led to within the Radical Reformation and, um, and, and progressive wings of Christianity, all the way up to the transcendentalists, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson and other transcendentalists in the 19th century, who took that the whole way to that idea of the lifting of the veil between the human and the divine, that concept um, out of Unitarianism, early Unitarianism, well, of be, as well, of being able to grow in likeness to God, which is itself tied to Christian and Jewish understandings of being made in the image of God. Imago Dei. Do you know that phrase, Imago Dei, made in the image of God? I actually think that that phrase, Imago Dei, is in some ways the most humanist understanding within the traditions that use it, within Judaism and Christianity, because it holds within it the idea that humans are good, that they have the potential for goodness within them, being, being made in the image of God. Imagine the dignity that that gives to a human being. Now, that's not the only way humans are described in those two traditions, but for me, it's the one that resonates most strongly with the humanist message. And indeed, that's often what's called on when we are working in alliance with Jews and with Christians on justice positions. We'll talk about the inherent worth of every person, and the Christian way of saying that will be to say that every person is made in the image of God. And, and we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about that worth deep inside a person, although we're, we're talking about it from different angles and from different theologies. So through the Radical Reformation, through early Unitarianism and Universalism, back when they were Christian traditions in the 19th century, and as we've seen through the Society of Friends, that divine within from the incarnation was really universalized to see the divine within each of us, that inner light within each of us that the Friends talk about. For me, that resonates with a, a common Unitarian Universalist understanding or interpretation of Christmas, which comes from the religious educator Sophia Lyon Foss. It's the interpretation that I was brought up with. She has a beautiful poem that begins, Each night a child is born is a holy night. So when I was raised in a Unitarian Universalist congregation, Christmas was often talked about as a celebration of how miraculous it is every time a child is born and how we hold that child precious because of the inner light, the spark within each of them. So finally, I sort of wonder what would Jesus have said about the divine within? Of course, we don't really know. We have these stories written hundreds of years later and we try to get at some of the historical truth behind them. 
I think it's likely that part of what is true is how Jesus referred to God, which was in some ways one of the most radical things that he did in his time. Remember, Jesus was a Jew at a time when Judaism was highly structured, very hierarchical. There, you know, there were um, only certain people could go into certain places in the temple, and there were all kinds of laws. And it was, it was challenging for folks who were considered unclean to be kind of at the center. They really couldn't be there at the center. And so one of the most radical things Jesus did was to say that everybody could be at the center, that everybody could be at the center of love and for him at the center with God. He called God Abba, which is actually, I think it's, it's translated as father, but it really means daddy. You know, so so this sense of, of deep closeness that was available to anybody, whether you were the right kind of person or not the right kind of person, that's really the sort of um, the, the doing away with hierarchy that was one of the most radical things, I think, that he did. And again, I think we see a, a connection there, or I see a connection with transcendentalism, the lifting of the veil, the doing away with the need for clergy at all, for churches, you know, the transcendentalists just kind of went on a hill and had a moment out there. Of course, you know, I'm a clergy person serving a congregation, so I'm not really sure about that, but, but hills are nice. Um, and the idea of the Quakers, most Quakers don't have clergy and really have that sense of being able to be intimately connected themselves with the inner light within each person and the inner light found in their community. So there's a breaking down, I think, of barriers, barriers between us and the divine, between us and the universe, a connectedness and opening. You know, Christians often ask the question, what would Jesus do? You remember a few years back that was a very popular phrase on bracelets and everything. And I joke sometimes that ethical culturists have a similar question, which is what would Adler do? You know, we frequently turn to the founder of ethical culture and try to find out what he might say. And actually, he lived for quite some time and wrote a lot and talked a lot. So much like the Bible, you can proof text Adler to support uh, proof texting as using a, a one plucking out verses to support your point. And you can pluck out verses from Adler to support almost any point you would like to make, which is super convenient for me. Uh, but, but so maybe the question here is, W-W-A-D-A-J, what would Adler do about Jesus? What did he say? And I read a little bit about that, of course, in preparation for this. And uh, Adler really saw Jesus as himself a universalizer of the divine within, much in the way we've been talking about it. In An Ethical Philosophy of Life, one of Adler's great works, Adler wrote, and I quote, Jesus, he's talking about what, what Jesus brought. He has a section on each, on each religious figure in major religious movements and what they brought to our understanding as humans. So he says, Jesus affirmed that the spiritual nature exists in all human beings. And then he goes on. To love men is to be conscious of one's unity with them in the central life and to give effect to this consciousness. So I read, I read this, what Adler said about Jesus, after I'd already written that other stuff I've just been telling you about. And, and I think he agreed with me, don't you think, in that little passage right there? It was so convenient. Um, the idea of Jesus really giving that message that there was a spiritual nature, a spark within each of us, that spark that was so important to Felix Adler to, to say that each one of us has a spiritual nature, 
um, he saw Jesus as being part of that message throughout history. So we've been talking about the divine within throughout this whole month, coming from from Felix Adler's um, quote, man is our sole ground for believing that there's anything divine in the universe outside of man. Man is the revealer of the divine. And of course, as we've seen over this exploration of different religious traditions, that's revealed in so many ways to different people over history and around the world. There's a metaphor that I particularly love um, from Forest Church, a Unitarian Universalist minister, um, and it's a metaphor of a cathedral. First, there's the idea that, you know, a cathedral takes so long to build that you come into a cathedral and someone has been working on it for years before, and they will not finish it for years to come. So you're there for just this moment. And that, that's about you know, the span of human history and the, the story of humanity, which is so much bigger than our little lives will know. But then the second part of the metaphor asks you to imagine being in front of one of those stained glass windows in a cathedral, you know, and looking at the floor below where the light's coming through and is shown in all of those patterns in the colored glass. And each window has a different story. And so there you are looking at this window, this particular window, which is your window. And you see the way, the pattern that the light takes on the, on the floor, and it's meaningful to you. But right next door to you is somebody looking at their window and a different pattern on the floor. But coming in through those windows is the same light. So I love that metaphor, the way it invites us to know, to imagine that there's some kind of truth that we're all hungering for, that we see differently. And it matters how we see it. It matters what pattern on the floor is most beautiful to us. But at the same time, we can appreciate our neighbor looking at a different pattern in a different way and what it means to them. Felix Adler was influenced by world religious studies. We know it was a new field at the time in the 19th century when he studied it in Europe, really to be able to look at world religious traditions from from the, the vantage point of real scholarship. And he really started ethical culture in part because he saw that those different religious traditions had at their core some of the same ethical messages. And he wanted to create a tradition that that spoke to that core, that spoke to the ethics that they share. So we may find at time at times lots of resonance with other with other religious traditions. We may love the pattern that we see our neighbor looking at or we may say, "Boy, those aren't the colors for me." But learning about them, I think, makes us better able to be part of a multi-faith world. And it deepens our own sense of who we are, too. It throws the colors and the patterns of our own window into high relief. So as we've explored the divine within and that sense of connection in other religious traditions, I've thought a lot about ethical culture about the centrality of relationship and the idea of mutuality, which is so core to the patterns and the colors that we love. About the emphasis on uniqueness, which I would really say is the heart of the sense of the divine spark in ethical culture, that that divine spark, that divine within, is the uniqueness that makes you only you and not like anybody else in the world. And then, too, in ethical culture, the sense... That, that none of those religious traditions and not even the own colors on our, on our window is the final word. 
that each religious tradition teaches something, but that so too does our own study, our own thought, our own experience. That's core to who we are as well. So I look back at the, at the monthly theme and kind of think about what we've learned. Um, Buddhism, we, we looked at that idea of emptying, the emptying of self to find the true self within, the awakened, the real self within. My colleague Mary talked about Judaism on the second week and the idea of looking for the divine spark which could be in every person, that we never know that each person could be precious. Then I looked at Earth-centered traditions last week and the idea of a connection even beyond human to human to all that is, a connection to the all within us, and we reframed divine within a little bit that way. And for me, really, the, the, the gem, the kernel within the Christian tradition is the idea of the breaking down of barriers. Just as Adler said, the idea that the spiritual nature is within each person, accessible to all of us. For me, all of those religious traditions speak to the idea of openness and awareness, to awakeness and to searching listening to the quiet and to each other. It's an idea, I think, that's found in mysticism. Some of you have heard me talk about the the reason I love mysticism is at the end, the mystics of every religious tradition end up sounding an awful lot like each other, you know? And frequently what they talk about is the idea that we are one, as we sang this morning, that we are connected. Here's how Felix Adler said it in An Ethical Philosophy of Life. You've heard this quote before, but it's so perfect for our theme, I want to share it again. The unique personality which is the real life in me, I cannot gain unless I search for the real life, the spiritual quality in others. I am myself spiritually dead unless I reach out to the fine quality dormant in others. For it is only with the God enthroned in the innermost shrine of the other that the God hidden in me will consent to appear. For me, that really says it, that idea of mutuality, of learning from each other and the windows that we all stand at as we look at the colors on the floor. The colors that show us just how the light will appear in our own lives.